Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about how the debate over our healthcare system has been framed and how we should frame it. Before we get started, though, uh, a couple of thoughts. I've been realizing in the past couple of days that healthcare, specifically the denial of the necessity of a universal healthcare system, is basically akin to climate change denial. The reasons are so similar, and then the arguments that follow are nearly identical. So you've got corporate power, right? You've got entrenched corporate power invested in the status quo. They don't want anything to change. If we were to either solve climate change or implement universal health care, it would very much disrupt the entrenched corporate power. And then secondly, there's the boogeyman of socialism, which makes a great cudgel to argue against this kind of necessary change, no matter how beneficial it would be for everyone, because we can scare you by saying socialism. And this really crystallized for me recently. I was listening to an interview with a libertarian, which is it's sort of great to use a libertarian as a foil for argumentation because they take everything to such extremes. It's like looking at an, uh, an argument in a funhouse mirror that makes all of the absurdities look bigger and more bulbous so, so you can really see them clearly. And, and so the way this discussion went, this libertarian being interviewed by a guy who's you know pushing back a fair amount and they were debating healthcare. So the first argument, just like climate change, was to deny that there's a problem. He talked about how the only thing wrong with the U.S. healthcare system is that it's not free market enough. We just need to get government completely out of the healthcare system. And then the second step was once he was sort of backed into a corner and shown that the economics don't really make sense and you get better outcomes from different systems and we'd actually pay less. And so if you're into free markets and capitalism, wouldn't you want to spend less and get a better result? He then switched directly into basically the immorality of making any kind of change like that. Because for a libertarian, it's immoral to tax him in any way, which is just the extreme funhouse mirror version of socialism is evil. Anything that the government does to a libertarian, basically, is, is socialism. I, I was just struck with how mirror image these arguments are and how completely flimsy, of course, each of them are and how they crumble at the slightest provocation or introduction of facts or thoughtfulness or, uh, you know, morality beyond the ability of the individual to take as much for himself as possible while allowing millions to go uninsured and, you know, many thousands to die every year because of it. Now, just another quick note before we really get started, a quick reminder that we are facing a fiscal cliff in the new year. I've been talking about this uh, over the past few episodes, but not everyone listens to every episode, so i got to rehash. Our advertising broker is demanding that I begin tracking and spying on the behaviors of my listeners, putting, you know, code in, in the podcast and making it so that we can see sort of Everything you do with your listening habits and connect to third-party databases to track you around the internet so that we can more accurately target ads at you, which I think is totally, completely creepy. But if I refuse to do that, then as of January 1st, this broker is going to 
drop the show and we're going to lose about a third of our monthly funding. So I announced an ambitious fundraising goal to nearly double our patrons by the end of the year to make up for this impending shortfall. So far, we're about 10% of the way there. You can see the the up-to-the-minute progress on our Patreon page. It's a big ask, I know. I am confident we'll get there, though, because this is not a drill. (laughs) This is not manufactured motivation as a fundraising strategy. I really am concerned about how this is going to play out. So if you get value out of the show and can afford a few bucks a month to support us, please sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now, finally, onto the show. Clips today come from Democracy Now!, The Young Turks, The Real News, The Ezra Klein Show, and a progressive faith sermon from Dr. Roger Ray. Let's go back 54 years ago this week to 1965. This is President Lyndon Johnson signing Medicare into law July 30th, 1965. Joining him at the signing was former President Harry Truman. This is LBJ. There are more than 18 million Americans over the age of 65. Most of them have low income. Most of them are threatened by illness and medical expenses that they cannot afford. And through this new law, Mr. President, every citizen will be able in his productive years when he's earning to insure himself against the ravages of illness in his old age. This insurance will help pay for care in hospitals, in skilled nursing homes, or in the home. And under a separate plan, it will help meet the fees of the doctors. And just think, Mr. President, Because of this document and the long years of struggle which so many have put into creating it, in this town and a thousand other towns like it, there are men and women in pain who will now find ease. President Lyndon Baines Johnson, July 30th, 1965. We turn now to Janet Golden, professor emerita at Rutgers Camden University and a historian of U.S. medicine. Her recent piece in the Philadelphia Inquirer is headlined, Happy Birthday to Medicare and Medicaid. Welcome to Democracy Now! Let's start, uh, Janet Golden, by you telling us what were the forces then that were working against Medicare and Medicaid? Who were the forces working for it? And then compare to what we're seeing 54 years later. How did Medicare and Medicaid get established? Well, Medicare and Medicaid have really have a long history. In, in 1930s, during the Great Depression, there was a push by the Committee on Costs of Medical Care to extend health care. Uh, we then had a push uh, in 1935 in the Social Security Act. There was a health insurance piece of that that was removed. Uh, Harry Truman, as you saw in that clip, pushed for health care beginning in 1945, and it took until 1965 when we finally got to Medicare and Medicaid. And interestingly, the forces against it are the same ones we're hearing about from today, the people who stand to make money from health care, although in those days it was more the physicians than the medical establishment in the, in the insurance companies. And the rhetoric was so wonderfully familiar. It was all about socialism and bankrupting bankrupting America and all the threats that choice would be taken away and 
health care would be rationed. So in many ways, the debates remain the same, although the partisans on each side have shifted a little bit, in part because, of course, our, our health care system has changed, medical education has gotten more important and more extensive uh, and more expensive. Our hospitals are now uh, sucking up a large part of our health care budget. And then, of course, the drugs and devices, the big pharma that are playing a role now. And they're all basically saying, uh, no, I, I like the profits as they are now, as uh, Senator Warren had said. But the forces then, um, those that fought against it, and though, how did it get through the Senate and the House? Were the charges of socialism uh, being <laughs> charged back then? How did it ultimately win? It won because we had uh, with the election of President Johnson, a broad coalition of Democrats who worked to make this happen. Um, basically, you had a mandate from the American people through their electoral process to say, yes, we need health care, and the forces were there. The AMA fought it extensively, and I, I hope you have that clip of— uh, Former President Reagan, before he was president, oh wait, let's uh, go campaigning to that clip. for let's, that. Yes, let's go campaigning against it to 1961. This is actor Ronald Reagan, who would become president of the United <laughs> States, who recorded an album titled "Ronald Reagan Speaks Out Against Socialized Medicine." Now, what reason could the other people have for backing a bill which says we insist on compulsory health insurance? for senior citizens on a basis of age alone, regardless of whether they are worth millions of dollars, whether they have an income, whether they're protected by their own insurance, whether they have savings. I think we could be excused for believing that, as ex-Congressman Ferran said, this was simply an excuse to bring about what they wanted all the time, socialized medicine. We can say right now that we want no further encroachment on these individual liberties and freedoms. And at the moment, the key issue is we do not want socialized medicine. So at the time, that's actor Ronald Reagan. Then he became president. Who was he paid by to do that? The American Medical Association and some other trade groups. So fascinating, because the American Medical Association would then go on to um, uh, push doctors in Canada to fight against um, Medicare for all, health care for all in Canada. Uh, that's afraid correct. That if the contagion spread north, that it would then influence people in the, the United States. I want to turn to a progressive activist for the Center for Popular Democracy, Adi Barkan, has ALS and traveled to the Medicare for All hearings, even though there was a significant medical risk to doing that travel because of how important it was to Adi that he explained to the people assembled there the urgency of dealing with the situation. And in the testimony that you're gonna hear, talked about obviously who the system is not working for, but also who the system is currently working for. And here's a bit of that testimony. This healthcare system only works if you're a pharmaceutical or insurance industry executive who wants to maximize their own profit at the expense of people like me. It is simply unconscionable that I should have to pay $9,000 per month for life-saving medical care at a time when the insurance industry is raking in record profit. That's wrong, and it needs to stop. Here's the thing, it's a huge stress to have to fight with insurance companies over what they'll cover. 
It's a huge financial strain. But most of all, I've come to realize that our time on Earth is the most precious resource any of us have. I wish I didn't have to be here today. I think you are wonderful, Congressman, but frankly, I'd rather be back at home, being with my wife and playing with my son instead of trying to wake the conscience of this nation's lawmakers. And obviously there was much more to it that you can find online, but it was it was powerful. So Addy is one of the best organizers, one of the top progressives in the country. And it's impossible to think about him without it being heartbreaking. And so he he is slowly dying, and that's just, it's hard to say out loud. Um, but you're gonna see Congressman Raskin explain the difference between misfortune and injustice in a second. But but for people who can't afford the treatment, think about how insane our system is. We just let them die. Mm-hmm. So if now, Addie's not in this situation, but if you don't have any health insurance and you don't qualify for a government program like Medicaid, if you get sick or your kids get sick with a long-term illness, not you know, hey, they, they broke their arm, they had a, they've got cancer. We let them sit in the fire. We don't send the cavalry. We let them die. Mm-hmm. That's insane. And look at the cost that Addie talked about. The costs are preposterous. It would bankrupt any family. I mean, when I when we talk to people outside of this country, you could do it yourself. It from any other Canada, Europe, Japan, talk to anybody in a in a with a country in a modern economy. They can't believe it. They say, "Really? America, the richest country in the world, just lets its citizens die without medical care." Yeah. It's insane. Yeah, and I think I mean, obviously I think people on our side, I mean, it goes against literally every political value that we have. Um but even on the opposite side, I don't remember the specifics. Maybe you remember better than I do. But there was a Republican primary debate in 2016 where they had a talk about this. About, and I believe that Donald Trump, who at that point was who was lying and pretending that he was going to take the healthcare situation seriously, that he would make sure that everyone was cared for and the government would pay for it. And I believe that he said, "I'm not going to let someone just die on the streets," which is a position that some of the other Republicans running for the office. Uh, we're pursuing and the reason that Trump was pitching himself that way is because nobody, no regular person who is not receiving checks from the pharmaceutical companies, the healthcare companies and all of that actually wants to see anyone, citizen or otherwise, die in the streets. But once you're handed a lot of money, you can be shifted to that position and there is a lot of money by the way. I looked it up, so far just this year, one quarter, health insurance companies, healthcare companies, that sector has spent $156 million in one quarter, the most of any sector of our economy. And the reason is because we're in this environment where people are talking about things like Medicare for all, and we're talking about hearings for Medicare for all. And so they are ramping up their spending to make sure that the status quo is maintained. The status quo that the the video we were just talking about, we were referencing how the current system, it is working for some people. And those people it's working so well for that they can afford to hand over $156 million in four months. Remember, a place like Canada, Japan, half our costs. It's not just a moral issue. It makes no sense at all to have private health insurance be a middleman where they soak up all the profits, give it to their executives, and there is higher medical errors, lab errors in America, higher mortality rates. Our results are significantly worse and it costs twice as much. So imagine a mainstream media, if instead of hearing what you hear all the time, which is how are you gonna pay for it? How are you gonna pay for it? They say it almost on a loop 24 seven, right? If instead you heard, how are we gonna pay for this current system? 
This is twice as expensive as all the other developed nations. How are we gonna pay for this system? And if you heard constantly, we let kids die in this country if they don't have health insurance. I think that we, it, Medicare for all already polls at 70%. If you heard the truth, probably poll at 90 or 95%. Why doesn't the corporate media do that? That's amazing, and by the way, one of the answers is, just look at their programmings on cable news. Filled to the rim with drug company ads. Yep. And so those guys who under this current brutal system get to jack up prices on you and the government doesn't even get to negotiate. They don't want the cable news guys talking about how terrible this system, the facts about it. One small side note now, we're gonna get to a great clip from (laughs) Representative Jamie Raskin here. But if you notice, Ryan Grimm, a young Turks and Intercept reporter was in the corner. He also covered the rally that they had for Medicare for All yesterday. You can check that out at facebook.com slash rebelhq. All right, uh, now let's let's okay. do Jamie Raskin. Yes, so uh, Representative Jamie Raskin, who is a co-sponsor for the Medicare for All bill, uh, being debated in the hearings today, uh, gave a powerful defense for the the moral rationale for uh, instituting a system like this. Let's take a look. That I had learned something in this process about the difference between misfortune and injustice, because. If your life is going great, you've got not one but two jobs that you love and a wife that you love, and my wife is here today, and kids that you love and constituents you love. And you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you, you got stage three cancer and you got a 50-50 chance of coming through it alive. That's a misfortune, it's a terrible misfortune, but it's just a misfortune because it's built into the nature of our species. you know. Um, any of us could be assigned such a verdict on any particular day. Anybody could get such a diagnosis. But, but if you experience such a misfortune and you get such a diagnosis and you can't get health care because you love the wrong person or you lost your job or you're not working or you're too poor, that's not a misfortune. That's an injustice because we can do something about that. And life is hard enough, Mr. Chairman, with all of the illness and accident and heartbreak for government to be compounding the misfortunes of life with the injustice of denying people access to healthcare when they get sick. And in the richest country in the history of our species, At its richest moment, not to advance forward to adopt a Medicare for all system um, is to deny, I think, the common humanity of our fellow citizens. That is is so powerful. And when I think, I don't want to derail this, but when I think about how the person currently leading the Democratic primary is against it, I just think, think about how there's no stronger defining issue that clearly differentiates the overall ideology and political values of our side versus Donald Trump and what he represents than what you just saw from Representative Raskin. And right now in the polls, looks like we might not go in that direction. So I don't know if you noticed, but in the video, the congressman sitting next to Representative Raskin, when he makes a point about the difference between misfortune and injustice, goes, wow, like he hadn't thought of that. Mm-hmm. And it was a great natural reaction. And it's it is that's exactly right. It's a devastating point. Look, guys, the good news is we're gonna win. We're gonna get Medicare for all. The only thing is we just have to break the corporate media blockade because they constantly misstate things. They say, oh, Medicare for all is gonna cost thirty two trillion. They had a right wing expert on to say that during the hearings too. But without 
explaining that the current system costs at least 50 trillion. I mean, what a terrible, terrible job of so-called journalism. How could you not explain that every other country has half our expenses for significantly better results? We literally die earlier than other developed nations. We're the richest nation on earth. But we treat our citizens so poorly that we die several years earlier than other developed nations. Why? Because hey, the CEOs of private health insurance companies have to make more money. Really? 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 That's your justification? That's unbelievable. And what does cable news host do? They're like, they ask with a straight face, people who are for Medicare for all, Bernie Sanders, AOC, but it could be others. They're like, are you really gonna put private health insurance executives out of business? Are you really gonna prevent them from making hundreds of millions of dollars and taking home several different yachts? No other country that's developed in all, in all the places that I described allows for that because you can't privatize the fire department, the police department, or health insurance, otherwise your citizens die so that someone can make a profit. Yeah. Once we get that word out, they have no chance of winning. They have no chance of winning. But we also have to regain our democracy so that we don't have just cable news stations, but also politicians representing big pharma, health insurance companies. And they are, they are. And this is what a lot of Democrats can't say. It's that there's systemic corruption. And almost all the Republican politicians, but also a lot of the Democratic politicians are legally bribed in our system. They literally get millions of dollars from these industries, and those industries get billions of dollars from us. And that's why we pay so much and why we let our citizens die. Today's episode is sponsored by The Forecast Fest, your source for the latest election news, from debate previews and recaps to analysis of how voters are leaning in the early primary states. Every week, hosts Harry Inton, Kate Baldwin, and John Avalon bring you all the data and analysis you need to get smart and stay smart this election season. Each episode, they'll give you the most up-to-date forecast for who's ahead and behind in the race for the White House and for Congress. But they won't just give you the what, they'll also give you the why. Want to understand how the impeachment inquiry might affect the 2020 presidential race? Want to get in the weeds on jungle primaries or polling methodology? You want to get unique political analysis rooted in data on major campaign issues like healthcare and climate change? From historical context to the latest polling, Harry, Kate, and John have you covered. Subscribe now to the Forecast Fest to stay informed of every twist and turn on the road to November 2020. Available wherever you get your podcasts. We start with the topic of healthcare reform, which has been a persistent issue in this presidential campaign. While Bernie wrote the bill, I read the bill. And on page eight, on page eight of the bill, it says that we will no longer have private insurance as we know it. And that means that 149 million Americans will no longer be able to have their current insurance. Insurance companies last year sucked $23 billion in profits 
out of the system. How did they make that money? Every one of those $23 billion was made by an insurance company saying no to your health care coverage. Mayor Buttigieg. The problem, Senator Sanders, with that damn bill that you wrote and that Senator Warren backs is that it doesn't trust the American people. I trust you to choose what makes the most sense for you. Was it 150 million people on private insurance? 50 million of those people lose their private insurance every year when they quit their jobs or when they go unemployed or their employer changes their insurance policy. So if you want comprehensive health care, freedom of choice regarding doctor or hospital, no more than $200 a year for prescription drugs, taking on the drug companies and the insurance companies, moving to Medicare for all is the way to go. So it seems like one of the main dividing lines between the candidates are those who like to say, uh, or who would like Medicare for all, that is universal health care, uh, and that they would like it to replace all private insurers. And that's basically the position of Sanders and Warren versus everyone else who would like to expand Medicare or some version of it and keep private insurance. So let's start with you, Asita. Um, what's your take on this distinction uh, between uh, the candidates on this issue and how they're talking about it? Well, this has been front and center, I think, at just about every debate that's happened so far. It used to be the case that when people talked about Medicare for all, the big debate was, well, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to absorb the cost of creating this new government system? Now it seems the critics of Medicare for all have shifted into this debate about whether private insurance gets kept under the new system. And it's not a trivial uh, distinction substantively or politically. If you look at polls done by the Kaiser Family Foundation and other groups, most Democrats do support Medicare for all, just the idea of it in general. But when you ask them, you know, do you support a system in which private insurance would be eliminated, the numbers start to go down. And people who criticize Medicare for all say that this is inherently sort of a, an inbuilt risk of advocating for the program. This means that people are going to be willing to get on board with the system uh, of the kind that Sanders is proposing. I think that's what's actually reflected in that number is something that Sanders and Warren both got at. People don't really love Aetna, they don't really love Lukosky Shield. That number is there because people are worried that um, a new system will create a kind of instability. But if Sanders and Warren can assure people that in a new system, everybody's going to keep insurance, maybe not their private insurer, but insurance, and they're going to be able to go to whatever doctor they want to, that might be something that reassures people who might be wary about the, the private insurance number. Mm. I mean, I think it's interesting that this um, that this issue doesn't seem to come out very clearly as to what the debate is really about. I mean, they don't seem to be able to get that message across right. that this uh, is is really the core of the problem, and then they keep posing it right. as if it was uh, a a uh, a fault in in the system that they're proposing. What's your thought on this, Jackie? So the problem uh, with the way the Democrats are framing their resistance to Medicare for all is very interesting. Um, and it's based on what Amy Klobuchar actually said. Now, she referenced the actual language in the bill. Um, and to make the argument that Medicare for all, Sanders and uh, Sanders bill and the bill that Warren backs will eliminate private insurance altogether. But according to her own words, that's not what the bill actually says. She said that on page eight of the bill that Sanders wrote, that we will no longer have private insurance as we know it. So it's not that under Medicare for all, private insurance will not exist anymore. 
It is that the way we operate in this system of relying primarily on private insurance for health care coverage will not exist as it does now. Because if everyone is ostensibly covered under Medicare for all, then private insurance will not be a primary um, source of, of coverage. I think that's a, a major distinction, but it's it's a, a, a fine point that unless you're really listening, you miss. And the Democrats are playing playing that up, I think, very craftily. Um, but I think it's one that we really need to pay attention to. Mm. Uh, Helena, I want to turn to you. What, what do you think? What do you make of uh, this kind of uh, debate on this particular issue? I think it's very interesting to go back to the point that workers do not choose their insurance as it has been presented. And I think that in that element in particular, Bernie was very good in stressing with the numbers that workers do not have a choice. It's really the employer who chooses among plans and then presents to them sometimes a limited choice between two or three uh, insurances at best in really a, a large employers. So I think that what we should be discussing here is coverage and quality of healthcare. Not the discussion is not about choosing, as some others have said, no one really cares about your insurance company. You do not feel you are being well treated by your insurance company. And I think that Warrison's point about the profit that insurance companies make really addresses that argument. But they do have to present it differently. And this idea that the government is choosing for you rather than choosing yourself has kind of taken over this discussion. And it's very unfortunate. It's not the main point. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very interesting point. You want to I add think I'll just say it too. One of the things that escapes notice in this discussion is that if you look at the plans that are being offered by the other candidates, you know, Pete Buttigieg and people who have offered what they see are more moderate versions of Medicare for all, their plans also point to a world in which private insurance doesn't exist or is radically eliminated. It's just on a longer time frame. I mean, if you look at what Pete Buttigieg says at the last debate, he says that, you know, he prefers a system in which we create a robust public option Uh, and if the public option really is good and it's cheaper than what's available in the private market, then most Americans are going to choose that and uh, that undermines a private insurance system. Well, that, that's still, it's essentially what Sanders is saying he's going to do automatically or from the get-go. Buttigieg just wants to stretch that out. Now, I think politically, if you're concerned about the Sanders plan is that Republicans are going to attack it and conservatives are going to attack it as something that eliminates private insurance. I don't think the Buttigieg plan fools them into not doing that or sort of reassures people once the message gets out that just like Sanders, Buttigieg or Beto, whoever is operating a public option plan is also going to take us to a world in which private insurance doesn't really exist. So I think people should just sort of be forthright and have a discussion about the role they envision private insurance playing in the system Uh, in terms of what private insurance is actually supposed to be doing in the healthcare system. Like, offer a defense of what Elizabeth Warren talked about, the fact that all this profit in the industry uh, is a product of private insurance companies saying no to certain services, no to different uh, treatments. Sort of offer a defense of that or, or debate the issue more directly than just sort of scaremongering about the Sanders plan, because I don't think that really serves anybody very well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, th th that's really interesting, the things that they leave out. I mean, and uh, just as Helena mentions, the fact that there's also no choice. And the other thing that seems to me that is being left out of this discussion is kind of uh, the uh, class dimension. What I mean specifically is that if you keep private insurance, then you're going to have a system, I guess, where, uh, where people who can afford the private insurance or who want doctors who charge way more than they would under the public 
option or the Medicare option uh, have uh, offer a different kind of service, a different level of service with much higher premiums, with much higher, uh, you know, basically insurance, but also higher uh, charges for themselves. Uh, and so then you have a very uh, differentiated system in the end in terms of service. Uh, what, what do you think? I mean, truthfully, that's exactly what we have right now. Even if you uh, are an employee and you receive your in- insurance through an employer, you you bet you select your plan if you have a choice of plans based on how much you can afford to pay out of pocket for each plan. And there are different levels for these plans. That this is for people who have full time jobs, who have full time employee benefits who get a choice in, in allegedly of what kind of insurance they can, uh, they can select. So if you're a single person, you can choose the least out-of-pocket, the plan that gives you uh, the least amount of coverage or the basic coverage for the least out-of-pocket expense for you. But what if you have a family or what if you have some health issues or you just want more to be covered in your plan, then you would opt to pay for uh, a higher level of coverage. You know, it's the basic, it's the gold, it's the platinum level of health insurance plans. We already have that um, among one class of insured people, and that's fully, you know, full-time employed people. But then there are people who are not uh, full-time employees, who are part-time employees, or who are unemployed, and they're on a different type of insurance, or they have access to a different type of insurance. So we already have a class-stratified health care coverage system in this country. Medicare for All really does seem to address that. Um, So the idea, I think, and this is the problem I had with what Pete Buttigieg said, that Sanders doesn't seem to trust the American people to choose. But if we're not giving American people an actual choice in in whether they're going to be fully covered or whether they have to worry about if they can afford decent health care coverage, how can the American people trust any of them with providing what's supposed to be a choice or not. And I think it's clear that Americans don't. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, an online service that gives you unlimited access to your own fully licensed therapist via phone, chat, and video. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional in-person therapy, plus you don't have to go to an office and sit around in a waiting room, but you're getting the same professional help from fully accredited therapists. And there's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in your area. You can schedule meetings that fit your schedule, you can message your therapist at any time, and you'll get a timely response. If you don't think the therapist they've matched you with is a good fit, you can switch to someone new at any time, at no extra cost. Go to their website and check out what BetterHelp users are saying about the service. New testimonials are posted daily, and they're giving Best of the Left listeners 10% off your first month of therapy when you go to betterhelp.com B-O-T-L. That's betterhelp.com slash B-O-T-L for 10% off. If private health insurance feels like such a nightmare to people, why don't they want it replaced when you ask them? 
Well, I think the polling's a little bit uh, confusing on this. You know, it is a complicated issue, and I'm not sure that uh, sort of one sentence or two sentence uh, questions really, really get at it. You know, so if you, if you ask people, I mean, we've seen a lot of polls. I'm sure you've seen now what dozens of them where people are trying to ask about switching to Medicare for all with different explanations of what Medicare for all is. There was one that I thought was the most interesting, obviously for for my position, which was the morning consult poll. That came out, I think, a month ago or so, in which they polled three questions. The one question was, do you support Medicare for all? No explanation of what it is. The second is, do you support Medicare for all, which gets rid of private insurance? And then the third is, do you support Medicare for all, which gets rid of private insurance, but you also get to keep your doctors? And, you know, Medicare for all polled okay. The one that just said, get rid of private insurance, like that modifier went way down when you added, but you get to keep your doctors. That one actually pulled higher than Medicare for all with no explanation um, beside it. So obviously framing effects are going to be a big, a big part of, of how anyone understands, you know, what's being asked of them. So that's a that, I agree with you that framing effects can matter a lot in polling. But in terms of the question of if you ask people, do they want private insurance replaced? They say no. I mean, that question has been asked over and over and over again. And. It's a continuous problem for people like me, um, and for that matter, like you, who want to reform the system in one direction or another. Um, even if you and I, I think probably disagree a little bit on end state, I think both of us would like to build something new in the place of what we have now. But when you ask people, um, they, they tend to say like, no, please, please don't do that. And then when you put it to them in other ways, because we can talk about polling, but Vermont tried to do it through the legislative system. It failed. Colorado put it on the ballot. 80% of people voted against it. There's a, a kind of continuous resistance to transformative change. And it's a, it's, it's a hard question for those of us who look at the system and say, this looks terrible. Like, why do you want something new? But uh, like finding an answer to why that is seems important to me. So, so, so what's yours? Well, I mean, again, I, I think for instance, I haven't seen the polls that just specifically say, do you want private insurance or not? But even that question, I feel like is not fully explained, you know, like, if you were to ask someone, if you were to describe the system in its totality, even in a few sentences to kind of highlight some of the negative parts, like, um, do you uh, want to keep a system in which uh, you get to have private insurance unless your boss doesn't want you to have it um, and takes it away from you? Like, is that the system you want? I think that would pull really badly, right? So, I mean, there's a communications aspect to it. Uh, do people understand that their private insurance gets taken away frequently? Are people over-optimistic? That seems to be a pretty common thing in, in American politics. You poll people, how many, you know, what percent of people think they're going to be rich at some point in their life? A large number of people, way more than we know, will actually be rich. So there's an optimism aspect to it that I think is, is, is maybe hard to, hard to, to, to get around. But I don't think if you ask people about the current system, if they would, that they would say they like it. And I think, when you present single payer, there's obviously some resistance there as well. So I don't know that you can like resolve and say like, ah, oh, yes, this is what people want. It seems like people have negative sentiments about all of these things. No, I don't think you can ever say this is what people want, which is frustrating. Um, what it, what it does seem to me to be true in healthcare and in a lot of spaces is people end up having 
either people end up having a status quo bias um, or the system ends up having a status quo bias with the sort of like canonical approach to that being that minorities who feel they'll lose something organize more intensively than diffuse majorities who might gain something. But that's why I ask you about some of these other efforts. I mean, again, Vermont just tried this a couple of years ago and it fell apart under the financing question and Colorado put it on the ballot and people said no. So I feel like there's an, an effort to often say, well, look, polls, you have polling effects and framing effects and who knows. But it's sort of a mixture of polling offering, I think, reasonably consistent answers uh, that people don't like some of the key features that you would need to do to move towards a full single payer system. And then the lived experience of reformers sort of going back to Truman in 1948, but then through a lot of different state efforts too, finding that when you put this to people, the combination of risk aversion and industry opposition ends up being something that is insufferable given the uh, like the institutional difficulty of passing things already in the American political system. And that needs to be taken into account in the analysis. I mean, my experience of you is that when people do try to take that into account in the analysis, you get very frustrated at them. So I think what I'm trying to draw out here is like, what is your alternative theory of this? Like, what what is leading you to a different conclusion than someone like me is reaching? I, I wouldn't say I get frustrated with people. I, I just, I don't really care. I mean, like fundamentally, we're, I'm a policy guy. I'm making a policy argument. We're trying to get politics swung in our direction. There's a certain group of people, and this is especially true of people in D.C. and then sort of centrist D.C. establishments who think their job is to uh, just sort of constantly, you know, hold their hold their uh, finger to the wind and decide this is where the people are at. And then there are people who are trying to push. And that's what I'm trying to do. You know, I'm trying to push people in the direction of good policy. So I don't really like at the end of the day care like whether people are here currently or not. Um, and, and what I guess frustrates me is the slippage between people who want to talk about policy, talk about whether this does this or that, right? Does Medicare for all take your insurance away or does employer sponsored insurance take your insurance away? They slip between that and then they retreat into some politics, which basically amounts to, you know, nothing ever gets done in America. It's like, okay, that's, you know, thanks. Like, yeah, almost everything anyone proposes is not going to succeed. So, I mean, what's the point? I mean, it, it, it ends up to me just reading of like, an indictment of futility, like just get out of the game. Why are you even doing politics? America's not set up to allow anything to change. So just just go do something else, man. So I think this is a I think this is like a useful a useful space here because I see it exactly the opposite way. Um, I also like to be a policy guy and have written like endless pieces that are purely about policy. But I also am interested in policy because I want people's lives to be better. I want people to have health insurance um, in this case um, and. If you do policy with absolutely no regard for political institutions or politics or where public opinion is, then what you're doing is just having a fun debaters club. And I like fun debaters clubs. Like like half of these podcasts are about things that are way outside of the, the norm of what may or may not happen. But there isn't like good policy isn't policy that will get annihilated as soon as it goes into the political system. And particularly when we're in a period where people are arguing about or trying to assess with imperfect information, but trying to assess, well, what is the plan that people should run on? What is the plan that might work when somebody is actually president and is trying to get it done? The idea that you would take politics out of that equation, it just seems baffling to me. It's like taking the politics out of politics. Well, then, then to me, it's like, well, what are you doing? Are you, are, do you, do you just want people to like retweet you or are you actually trying to get people health insurance? No, it's the exact opposite. So let's, let's (laughs) suppose everyone, let's suppose everyone took the Ezra Klein position. Then there literally is no politics. No one has any position on anything. 
No what one has mean? opinions because what you're I trying have lots to of do. No, 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 no. But you're trying to strike some balance. We here's the electorate. They have kind of opinions, the sort of masses. Here I am. I try to figure out where they are. What if they're trying to figure out where you are? What if everyone else is trying to figure out where everyone else is? There's, you know, there's an ultimately a kind of like uh, recursive element to it, which completely annihilates all politics. Someone somewhere has to have an opinion and has to push that opinion. That's the only way anything changes. Just, just yes, yesterday. The majority, we, we had another co-sponsor on Medicare for All in the House. This is the first time the majority of Democrats in the House have co-sponsored Medicare for All, as far as I understand. That would not have happened five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago. I know this because in 2008, I, I worked on the Ralph Nader campaign. He ran on single-payer health care. After that campaign ended, there was a little activist group that I was somewhat a part of that was called like single-payer now. We tried to push during that, um, you know, 2008 you know, health reform, that area, push them. There were, you know, interrupt uh, congressional hearings and that sort of thing. Oh, this can't be done. We can't even get, you know, five, 10 people to support it. Now we have the majority of the Democrats supporting it. Somewhere there has to be an input in the system that creates what is politically possible, right? And if everyone is just sitting here being like, oh, I'm trying to cut the 50th percentile, cut the 50th percentile, and then no one's defining what the 50th percentile is. And so that that's what the left's purpose is. And Separate from that, I mean, even if you don't like Medicare for all, or you think that's never going to happen. Where is the right wing of the Democratic Party right now? Isn't the right wing of the Democratic Party right now, at least as represented in the presidential election, a public option that goes and competes in every single market? Where was that four years ago? I remember public options for the exchanges, which got Im- immediately annihilated a tiny little market of 11 million people. Now we've got the front rudder right wing Democrat Biden supporting public option in every single market. That does not happen without any of the stuff that we're doing at People's Policy Project or Bernie Sanders or anyone on the left. We turn now to the issue of health care. This is South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg speaking last night. I don't think the American people are wrong when they say that what they want is a choice. And the choice of Medicare for all who want it, which is affordable for everyone because we make sure that the subsidies are in place, allows you to get that health care. It's just better than Medicare for all, whether you want it or not. And I don't understand why you believe the only way to deliver affordable coverage to everybody is to obliterate private plans, kicking 150 million Americans off of their insurance in four short years when we could achieve that same big, bold goal. And once again, we got to be president. We're competing to be president for the day after Trump. Our country will be horrifyingly polarized, even more than now. After everything we've been through, after everything we are about to go through, this country will be even more divided. Why unnecessarily divide this country over health care when there's a better thank, way to deliver you, coverage Mayor. for all? Senator Sanders. Uh, like well, as somebody who wrote this. the damn okay. bill, as I said, <laughs> let's be clear. Under the Medicare for all bill that I wrote, premiums are gone. Copayments are gone. Deductibles are gone. All out-of-pocket expenses are gone. We're going to do better than the Canadians do, and that is what they have managed to do. At the end of the day, the overwhelming majority of people will save money on their health care bills. But I do think it is appropriate to acknowledge that taxes will go up. They're going to go up significantly for the wealthy. 
And for virtually everybody, the tax increase they pay will be substantially less, substantially less than what they were paying for premiums and out-of-pocket expenses. Senator Senator Warren, will you um, acknowledge what the senator just said about taxes going up? So my view on this and what I have committed to is costs will go down for hardworking middle class families. I will not embrace a plan like Medicare for all who can afford it that will leave behind millions of people who cannot. And I will not embrace a plan that says people have great insurance right up until you get the diagnosis and the insurance company says, sorry, we're not covering your expensive cancer treatments. We're not covering your expensive treatments Thank you, for Senator. MS. We're Senator not covering Klobuchar. what you need. I didn't spend most of my time in Washington. I spent most of my time studying one basic question, and that is why hardworking people go broke. And one of the principal reasons for that is the cost of health care. And back when I was studying it, Two out of every three families that ended up in bankruptcy after a serious medical problem had health insurance. The problem we've got right now is the overall cost of health care. And look, you can try to spend this any way you want. I've spent my entire life on, on working on how America's middle class has been hollowed out and how we fight back. I've put out nearly 50 plans on how we can fight back and how we can rebuild an America that works. And a part of that is we've Thank got you, Senator. to stop Americans Sen- from going bankrupt over health care. Senator that was uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren talking about the Medicare for all. The questioner was the New York Times national editor, Mark Lacey. Uh, Steffi uh, Woolhandler, your, respo- your response and the refusal of Elizabeth Warren to be pigeonholed by the, by the, the question as to whether uh, taxes would be raised. Okay, well, I think the framing of that question is crazy. What really matters is how much the household is paying. And as Senator Sanders said, you're going to be paying so much less in premiums, copays, and deductibles that you're going to be paying less total for health care uh, than than you are than you are today, right? Uh, you're going to be paying a little bit more taxes, but you're going to be paying less of those premiums and copays and deductibles. But overall, you're going to be better off financially. That's the correct framing. And to sit around and obsess about whether you pay that $3,000 as a tax or that $3,000 as a premium is the wrong framing. And that's really what uh, Senator Warren was rejecting, in my opinion. Um, and that's how the media always frames it, the corporate media. The corporate media is always framing it. And you that know, stops pe- about every five or six or seven minutes for a drug commercial. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. And, you know, it's quite disingenuous because uh, Pete Buttigieg, and the health policy analysts of the world do understand that. They do know that people in other nations with single pay or Medicare for all pay a lot less for their health care than people do in the United States. But they use that little trick about talking about taxes as something horrible, but premiums, copays, and deductibles as something good. They use that trick to fool And is people. it clear what Buttigieg means by Medicare for those who want it? Well, Medicare for all for those who want it? Yes. It seems like he's endorsing a plan um, that uh, goes by many names, Medicare Part E, Medicare Extra for All, which would involve large subsidies for people to purchase uh, Medicare-like plan if they wanted it, but people in private 
uh, insurance because her employer purchased it could stay in the private insurance. The problem with that is it's much more expensive than Medicare for All, because if you include private insurance, you're also including their massive overhead and profits, which average 12 percent of total premiums, often more. Uh, you're continuing to waste hundreds of billions of dollars every year in the excess administrative costs at doctors' offices and hospitals because doctors and hospitals have to deal with multiple insurers. The whole idea of single-payer Medicare for all is you have a simple payment system. You can shrink that huge bureaucracy, uh, health bureaucracy, save about $500 billion a year by shrinking that bureaucracy, and that $500 billion is the money you need to cover everyone and eliminate copayments and deductibles. And Buttigieg is saying, oh, we can have our cake and eat it, too. We can have private insurance. We can have their hundreds of billions of dollars of wasteful uh, bureaucracy and overhead, and we're still going to be able to afford uh, Medicare for all. That's simply not Dr. true. Dr. Steffi Wilhandler, mm -hmm. you were a big supporter of Bernie Sanders before, and uh, now um, you were also a close ally of, uh, of Elizabeth Warren. You're both professors at Harvard. Um, she did use the term uh, Medicare for all who can afford it. What does she mean? Well, she was making fun of Buttigieg's uh, proposal because the Medicare extra plan, which I think he's talking about, requires people to make continue to pay substantial premiums, co-payments, and deductibles, even though they get some subsidies. So um, she's just saying, and I think it's a correct point, that— um, that with this Medicare extra for all, it's so expensive, there's so much administrative waste that we're going to get less coverage at a higher cost than what we could get with Medicare for all. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, pass Medicare for all government resolutions in your communities to build the national movement. Public Citizen, along with partners such as Social Security Works, Democratic Socialist of America, People's Action, National Nurses United, and many more, have launched Medicare for All Resolutions, a campaign that aims to build a national Medicare for All groundswell ahead of the 2020 elections through local action. To do it, they want people across the country to help pass Medicare for All government resolutions in their own towns and cities. This is in addition to any complementary state single-payer efforts. This week, October 28th through November 3rd, is the first campaign week of action, which kicked off with a virtual town hall with representatives Anaya Presley and Ilhan Omar. To learn how to take action in your town, get tools for activism, and watch the recording of the virtual town hall, head to medicareforallresolutions.org. That's Medicare, the number four, allresolutions.org. And you may be wondering... Why the campaign is targeting local governments? According to Public Citizen, local governments are often on the front lines of dealing with the consequences of our unaffordable and inequitable health system. This means they can play an important role in highlighting the desperate need for shifting to expanded and improved Medicare for all. Local resolutions can shape the public narrative and build political will necessary to support the national movement. And let's remember that we know what we're fighting for. The legislation already exists, and it is a true 
rallying cry for improved Medicare for All, thanks to the hard work of disability rights activists, both the Jayapal Medicare for All bill in the House and the Sanders version in the Senate now include long-term care services and supports for people with disabilities. The House bill has a record number of 106 original co-sponsors, and the Senate version has 14 original co-sponsors. Now we need a national conversation in communities across the country to counter disingenuous politicians in both parties and the media who are muddying the waters. Envision the future for a moment. Medicare for All covers everything except elective procedures, puts a $200 annual cap on prescription costs, and would let patients see any doctor they want. The days of premiums, co-pays, deductibles, exorbitant out-of-pocket costs, physician networks, and fighting for-profit companies to pay for necessary care would all be over. Despite new taxes, the vast majority of Americans will pay less for more comprehensive care and would never be denied. Building a national grassroots movement for Medicare for All leading up to the 2020 elections is critical to making this future a reality. Join the movement today at MedicareForAllResolutions.org. Medicare, the number four, allresolutions.org. So if you believe healthcare is a human right, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about passing Medicare for All resolutions in your communities via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Can you stand up and be counted? There's a body in a crowd. Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how we make a difference in this fickle world of change. Compared to all the other Western democracies, the United States spends roughly twice as much as almost everyone else and more than twice as much as France, Canada, Belgium, Japan, Australia, and the United Kingdom on health care. And they have virtually no deductibles in any of those other Western democracies. Now, why is this? Why do Americans spend twice as much while getting so much less than these other countries? Uh, let Let me give you an illustration from my personal life. My doctor wants me to get an echocardiogram <coughs> every few years because she says I have a heart murmur. I don't, I don't know. I've had people tell me I don't even have a heart. But she, <laughs> she thinks she hears something and I need to have an echocardiogram every few years. So what do you think that test ought to cost? What should it cost me to let some guy run a, I guess it's a magnet, they run over you to take a look at your heart? When my insurance-provided nonprofit hospital called me to schedule the test, they told me it would cost me $1,450 to have the test out of pocket. I don't even know if I need the test. I mean, it, it could be what we theologians call an act of supererogation on my doctor's part, which is more, more than even God expects of you, you know. But it isn't surgery. It isn't treatment, it's not medicine, it's not pharmaceuticals, it's just part of a checkup. So I might elect to skip it, 
But I happened to have access to another doctor who looked up an alternative, and I could get the test done in in uh, Kansas City for $450, less than one-third of what my nonprofit hospital was going to charge me. And this is a for-profit business. So what does it actually cost to give uh, a corpulent cleric uh, an echocardiogram? A couple of hundred bucks? Why do they charge $1,450? Why does healthcare cost more than twice as much in the United States as it does elsewhere? Because, men and women, insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, and healthcare providers have turned being sick, or in my case, just being old, into an opportunity to make money. They get to turn your money into their money while lobbying and, and running ads to get you to vote for the same regimes that are just bathing under the spigot of money that used to be your money. If America manages to go to a single-payer system, whether it's Medicare for All or some other iteration of a single-payer system, our costs will go down by about 50%. And that is just math. Anyone that tells you otherwise is either stupid or they are lying to you. The fact is, if we go to a single-payer system, the actual percentage of Americans' income that is going to pay for health care will go down by half. Now, politics will dictate who pays that half. If the cost of health care is distributed fairly across the economic playing field, lower-income people will pay less, higher-income people will pay more, and that is what has the corporate news media and the oligarchic puppet masters of our economy all up in arms because the rich don't want to pay more. I was holed up in Kansas City in a hotel after my $450 echocardiogram on Tuesday watching the Democratic debate in which the corporate media and the corporate candidates were trying to force Elizabeth Warren to say that her Medicare for All proposal would make middle-class taxes go up. Now, the truth is, and I've said this in this pulpit before, we would be shifting from paying premiums to insurance companies to paying for health care through taxes. And employers who've been paying premiums for their employees can either stop paying those premiums and give the same amount of money to their employees as wages, or they could be taxed to pay into the Medicare system. So costs will go down and they will go down dramatically. But how it is paid for will change, and that change is actually a fairly complicated political debate. But it could be done fairly, and done in a way where virtually everyone, corporations, the rich, and the poor alike, will all benefit. Everyone will be better off when we stop raking off the bureaucratic cost and the profits taken in our current system. And I dare say that while Americans just don't understand how this would work and why they would benefit, I know this with certainty. All 12 candidates on the stage Tuesday night do understand the math, the political issues, and the process. At least 11 of them do. I mean, yeah, there's, there's always... Never underestimate the possibility of stupid among politicians, but, <laughs> but I'm going to assume that of the 12 people on stage... 
and the correspondents that were doing the questioning, they all already know the right answers. They're just acting like they don't. Pete Buttigieg is a veteran. He was a Rhodes Scholar, a Harvard graduate, and a self-proclaimed evangelical Christian. And yet he stood on stage and lied like a cheap rug about the costs and benefits of Medicare for All. Now, currently, Mayor Pete is second only to Donald Trump in political contributions from health insurance and pharmaceutical companies, proof that our system of political donations can corrupt someone, even someone that we would otherwise really want to like. I mean, I, I want to like a guy with this kind of education, this kind of smarts, and the fact that he is uh, openly gay and married. And, you know, he, he, this is the kind of guy that I might really want to get happy about if it weren't for taking all that money from drug companies and standing on stage and lying like he assumes that we are all as dumb as a box of rocks. Senator Amy Klobuchar bills herself as a pragmatist, and calls Medicare for all a pipe dream. And it is a pipe dream if your first priority is to make sure that you surrender immediately to the uh, outrageous and obscene profits pocketed by the health insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies. If, however, you have some measure of compassion and you want sick people to be able to get health care It is not only not a pipe dream, it is a practical, efficient, and eminently affordable way to do it. You just have to decide if you want to serve the billionaire corporate interest or the interests of the American people, and honestly, it's not much more complicated than that. I just wish that smart people would stop treating voters as if we were as gullible as a preschool-aged child being enticed to get into the van and the promise of candy. We currently have a president who lies about everything. Is it too much to ask, then, for those who want to replace the liar-in-chief to tell the truth about things as important as health care? In this moment, I'm not standing here advocating for any one candidate. I'm not against any one candidate or candidates. What I am in favor of as a religious professional is compassion. I need to see America do what every other Western democracy has done, which is to provide health care to everyone, regardless of age, race, gender, or nation of origin. Period. End of story. Because anything less is morally bankrupt. And haven't we all had enough of that already? Politics is sometimes the art of dividing people against one another so that they can never see who is really controlling their destiny and taking their wallet at the same time. Now, this sign has become fairly famous uh, on social media. This insulin user is outraged by the amount of money that's being spent to save heroin addicts from overdoses. But the real problem is not how much money is being spent to save heroin addicts. The real question is why does your insulin cost $750 a month? That's the real issue. If the same vial of insulin costs 90% less in Canada as it does in the United States, your problem is not heroin addicts, 
Your problem is politicians who are addicted to the political donations of pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> if you're an insulin user, you have reason to be angry, but you should be angry about who is actually robbing you rather than someone who is probably just as much a victim as you are. Now, it's difficult to gauge exactly how much public support there is for Medicare for all because the voting public is being lied to constantly by both Republicans and Democrats about health care in order to protect the financial interests of the super wealthy providers. But this much I know for sure. 100% of the people who are sick want to have access to health care. And I can add this. 100% of those people will believe that they ought to be able to get that health care without having to go bankrupt. And that is the system we do not currently have in this country. And I'm going to keep talking about it until we do. Amen. Folks, this is what I believe. I believe that peace in the absence of justice is really just surrender. And this is no time for us to surrender our health for corporate profit. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, looking at the history of scaremongering over healthcare. The Young Turks highlighted two clips from a healthcare hearing that go to the core of the morality of universal healthcare. The Real News analyzed a portion of the third Democratic debate focused on healthcare. The Ezra Klein Show had on Matt Brunig to discuss how to frame the healthcare debate and the differing strategies of trying to appeal to popular opinion versus trying to actually change it. Democracy Now! analyzed the healthcare section of the fourth Democratic debate. And finally, we just heard Dr. Roger Ray's progressive faith sermon on how America has been taken hostage by our healthcare system. Members will hear more from Bernie Sanders on the trap question of being asked only about taxes and not about costs, and a longer segment than I usually have time for telling the story of one woman's epic quest for health insurance, which is well worth hearing. And then finally, Alan from Connecticut and I on The Bonus Show are having a discussion about whether or not I'm an asshole, or I guess more precisely, whether or not I am in danger of becoming one. And it's turned into a bit of a debate. I am on the side that, yes, I am in danger of becoming an asshole. Alan is trying to argue that I'm probably not. Only members will get to hear the facts as I lay them out and be able to decide for themselves. So to hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft, and now we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. Dave from Olympia. Just listen to one... One, three, one? I think that's not right. It's the economy's making us depressed, um, which was a fantastic episode. I think I don't care for Johan Hari. Um, and so it ended on like a blah note for me. I don't agree with the point he's trying to make. 
maybe I'm just disagreeing with the way he's trying to make it. I think those two clips capture my frustration. I, I get the sense of the general direction, uh, universal basic income, society is more responsive to us as a, as a group or an individual. That's all fantastic. But he's so inconsistent and weirdly scattered that delightfully patronizing story about the psychiatrist who goes to Cambodia. I think he said Cambodia, somewhere Southeast Asia. And, you know, these doctors from the country, and he called them doctors, but they don't understand how pharmaceuticals work. You know, they have to be explained what, what these what these medications are. I mean, they're doctors. They've gone to college. They've studied what pharmaceuticals are. This story probably never happened. But, you know, they come back with a, you know, a traditional practice about creating connections to treat depression, which is some sort of shock to this trained psychiatrist who's apparently never heard of the connection between isolation and depression and that forming social bonds can help, you know, buffer you from those impacts. It just, it's like... That sounds like it, it's a lovely story if you tell it fast, but that that's not. No, nobody really doesn't understand how pharmaceuticals work. And nobody really has never considered that, you know, social bonds can protect you from depression. It's just that he seems, he vacillates. He seems to have it both ways where he's, he's super excited to announce that, you know, the World Health Organization and other, you know, major medical groups for years have been touting that you know their depression is not biological it's caused by social factors and that you can you know protect yourself by having strong social relationships by getting out into nature by having you know a purpose in what you're doing by having a sense of control over your life and then switches to, to talking about you know these doctors that just want to pathologize people that have uh, depression and you know do nothing but medicate them and it just you can't have it both ways either you know the medical profession knows something about treatment for depression beyond uh, medication or, or they don't but you can't cite them as the part of the problem and then oh they're just they they know and they're just being ignored ah, i think it just okay. What it comes down to is it wasn't well thought through the point he was making or just pulling random bits of facts to try and support it. The stuff about, boy, virtue envy and bullshit jobs, like that was, that was fascinating. I love the first two thirds of the episode. Not so much as you and Harry, but uh, as always, stay awesome. Hey, Jay, Todd from Utah calling again. Just got to congratulate you on your most recent show about the bucket of deplorables that are occupying the White House along with our current president. And I do say bucket intentionally because I know they belong in a basket normally, but above a certain level of sliminess, I don't think a basket would really hold them. Anyway, it was great to get a deep dive on that because I knew Mnuchin was one of the worst people in the world, but it was great to get more detail on why because it helps you win arguments. 
and educate those who are educable, I guess. I'm calling for a different reason, though. I had um, been one of your sponsors on a prior service that you used, and I realized I never switched over when you switched to Patreon. And since you're having your drive-in quotes to help you get enough subscribing members to help you not be dependent on advertising, and good for you for not buckling to that pressure, I wanted to offer... Um, a little bit of a, a fun challenge or a, a challenge grant in a very small way. I'm committing for sure to become a paying member of $6 a month, but I'd love to encourage six other people or 36 other dollars, however that divides up, to be um, pledged today, whatever day this plays or drops. I'll give it 24 hours from when it drops. But if for every for every $6 that gets pledged, whether that's six at a time or six in pieces, I'll add a dollar to my pledge for the coming two years. So if um, up to $12, so it'll get me up to doubling my pledge. If you guys just say, hey, today's the day. Um, I've been thinking about doing it. I keep putting it off. But if I do it now, I'll get an extra dollar out of Todd and, and then everybody wins. So, Jay, if you like the idea, you can play the voice message. If that doesn't... Um, fit the way you want to do things then don't play it and maybe you can uh, let me know how i should do that differently either way after the next show i'll put my pledge in and if if my message plays i'll keep track of how many people pledged or let jay tell me and then i'll adjust my pledge accordingly anyway good luck good job and um stay strong thanks bye-bye Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Dave, uh, with his criticisms on uh, Johan Hari clip, I think it was totally legitimate based on, on the clip that was played. Honestly, that that slipped by me, which I, I feel sort of bad about that um, the way the story was told about the Cambodian doctors who seemed totally ignorant of antidepressants, like they'd never heard of it in their lives, did sort of uh, rub me the wrong way a bit. And I, I don't know if it was explained in the clip, but... I went and found an article written by Johan Hari on the same topic to see if he, I could get more details or a slightly different angle. And so here's, here's what he wrote in Vox, quoting, As the 21st century was beginning, a South African psychiatrist named Derek Summerfield happened to be in Cambodia conducting some research on the psychological effects of unexploded landmines at a time when chemical antidepressants were first being marketed in the country. The local doctors didn't know much about these drugs, so they asked Summerfield to explain them. When he finished, they explained that they didn't need these new chemicals because they already had antidepressants, unquote. So I, I totally agree that the story was sort of cartoonified in Hari's TED Talk, basically for entertainment benefit. But I do think that the core bits of it are still probably true. And the fact that it happened right at, you know, in, in the early 2000s is a lot different than if it was happening, you know, within the last 10 years when antidepressants were extremely widespread and any doctor on the planet would be expected to have, you know, pretty good familiarity with it. And then lastly, Todd, thank you very much for your pledge challenge. Uh, the show, for reference, posts like near the end of the day 
in America on Friday. So if you want to take Todd up on his challenge, get your pledges in by end of the day-ish on Saturday in America. So like if you're all in Australia, you got to do the math because you're a day ahead and et cetera. If you'd like to offer your own pledge challenge, I thought Todd's was a great idea. If you want to uh, repeat it, let me know. And if you can think of any other sort of fundraising strategy you think I should use, let me know that too. Now, just a quick reminder that the Forecast Fest is your source for the latest election news from debate previews and recaps to analysis of how voters are leaning in the early primary states. Every week, hosts Harry Inton, Kate Baldwin, and John Avlon bring you all the data and analysis you need to get smart and stay smart this election season. Subscribe to the Forecast Fest wherever you get your podcasts. That's going to be it for today. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely more than ever how this program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Now for today's news by Limerick, we've been discussing recently the controversy over Facebook announcing its policy to accept political ads with lies in them, making no attempt to fact check them in any way. Mark Zuckerberg's been under fire for that. Meanwhile, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey announced they just weren't going to take any political ads at all, sidestepping the problem completely. At Limericking, appropriately on Twitter, writes... On Twitter, Jack stated today, some ads will be going away. The difference is stark between him and Mark, who says you can lie if you pay.